So let me open in prayer and we'll begin diving in. Lord, I thank you for the reformers and what they've brought back from the dark ages, a time when people didn't look to scripture, a time when people looked away from your word. We're thankful that it has been recovered, that the gospel goes forth, that we can learn about this history and profit much from it. Let it encourage us, let it warn us, and I pray we would be edified in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have Arminian theology arriving in the 1600s. Who remembers the, the century of the Reformation is what? I'll, I'll, I'll not narrow it down. I'll just a century. 1500s. 1500s. Martin Luther, John Calvin. The Reformation happens in the 1500s. So it's about a hundred years or more before Arminian theology arrives on the scene. Which means if you're Protestant in Europe in the 1500s, you are going to more than likely be somebody who believes in predestination, election. I say believe because those terms are in the Bible, but believe and teaches those things. That a person can't lose their salvation, that Christ died for the elect. Those are things that would be normal until Arminianism arrives on the scene. And even then, it's going to be about 300 years before it becomes extremely popular theology. It's going to be modern America that makes Arminius, and somewhat England, but really America, that makes Arminian theology something everybody loves. Ernest is passing out a handout that we'll go over at the end, near the end of class or second half that compares Arminian theology to what's called Calvinistic theology. So 1603 to 1619 is when Arminian theology arrives on the scene. Obviously, the guy's not 16 years old, so that's not his lifespan. We'll talk about him. Uh, he lives a lot longer than 16. But that's the woodcut or drawing of Arminius, Jacob Arminius. That was his Latin name. So we'll look at his life and we'll look at the theology that he proposed and then what happened with his students after he died. It's always the next generation, the students, who get more radical and, and take it and, and make a bigger deal out of it. So that's uh, Arminius. Here are the original Reformed guys. Our Luther is typically referred to as Lutheran. But remember, it was Luther who started the Reformation. He was the preacher. He was the one who said, let's go back to the Bible. So he, he fought the Catholic Church in a doctrinal sense on that. He uh, started the reform movement officially. It was then Zwingli who came along and disagreed with Luther on some things. So Luther is the Lutheran and Zwingli starts the reform branch of the Protestant movement. So you have the Reformation really occurring in two places, Germany with Luther and in Switzerland with Zwingli. Then Calvin comes along a little bit later. He picks up where Zwingli had left off and continues in Switzerland. And Calvin is the theologian of the Reformation. So he gave it the doctrinal shape in writing the books that he wrote. So he, it says here on the slide that he gave the Reform movement the doctrinal character it needed after Zwingli died in 1531. So with the term reform, Calvin meant the Catholic Church reformed of abuses. So the Catholic Church had been reformed was the idea, obviously, they ended up doing away with most of the Catholic beliefs. But the idea that Luther had was to reform the Catholic Church, not to replace it. But eventually it had to be replaced because it's really hard to make a change in the uh, really defunct system that the Roman Catholic Church was. 
So Calvin uh, develops this. He writes books about it. He talks about it and uh, preaches on it. And then after Calvin dies, the one who takes over that movement, because there's now a seminary, there's the churches of Geneva, and they're training pastors, and they're sending them out. 2,000 pastors went back to France. Most of them died due to persecution. Calvin also sent a couple of pastors to Brazil, to the new continent, uh, to evangelize. They ended up being killed and not lasting long, but they did send out missionaries all over. Uh, the guy that took over for Calvin is Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza. He succeeded John Calvin in Geneva. So this was one of the students that we talked about last week from Calvin's seminary. He had many famous students, uh, one of which is John Knox, who goes to Scotland and reforms Scotland. And another one is Theodore Beza. So if you go to Geneva today, remember the, the statue, the wall, where the the figures are in concrete and they're coming out from the wall. Those are Calvin, you have Beza, and you have John Knox, Farrell, all the guys who were in Geneva during the Reformation. So Beza takes on the teaching of Calvin, takes over the school and starts training men and works harder to put these things into writing. What, what do we believe? What do we teach? He established basically what's called Reformed Scholasticism. Generally, we'll just say Scholasticism is a type of study where we're, we're going to get down to the details. What do we teach? What do we believe? And how do we study that? So now it's becoming developed. Don't think of universities yet. Don't think of all these Reformed seminaries. But there are a few. And they're starting to figure out, what do we need to teach our students on doctrine? How do we educate a pastor? How do we educate you know, young adults, how do we educate children? And so catechisms and confessions are starting to be written. Other people followed this. Martin Bucer, Henrik Bullinger, and Johan. I'm not going to try to say his last name, but uh, these are different reformers that we won't go into detail about for the class. We're going to follow through with Beza, see what happens with Arminius. So there's Beza in his earlier life. That's him in his younger days. There he is later. Still got the, the beard like Calvin had, but hats, hats, very important. Hats are changing, the style of hats. So this is looking more like the Puritan hat that we're used to seeing in America in the 1600s. But Calvin, they had more of a cap, the scholar's cap. But by this time, what was in fashion was the hats and the ruffled, um, I don't know what you call it, the ruffled collar. Style was important. See, you don't think about reformers and pastors not being cool back then. Because they had some style, you know, to wear this ruffled thing around your neck. That had to be annoying. You know, people complain about a tie being too tight, but that thing's got to itch. No wonder they never shaved, right? So like Thomas Aquinas, remember Thomas Aquinas was the great scholar of the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages in the 1200s. He put it all together for the Catholics. And much of what he said about God and the doctrine of God, we could agree with today. Um, so much like him now, Beza and those who follow are going to emphasize uh, Scripture. They're going to talk about tradition, but not like Aquinas did with the Catholic Church. They're going to talk about tradition saying the early church fathers. What did they teach? And then they're going to focus on reason, but not in a bad sense. Not reason in the sense of uh, let's just use our own mind and set Scripture aside. No, they're going to say let's study Scripture 
using our minds. Let's use the gift that God has given us of reason and logic and let's study Scripture. So they want to work out their specific theological formulations. And so these men are not Lutheran. When you think of the, the early Reformed people, there's Reformed and Lutheran, two different branches that are already starting. But they're very similar to the Lutheran Orthodox, the, the beliefs, the, the Augsburg Confession we looked at last week and their approach to theology. So this is really just getting started. What do we teach about theology and Scripture? Well, then along comes a student of Calvin, Jacob Arminius. He did not like what particularly Beza taught. He didn't like the theology of Beza. So now we get into the argument of what did John Calvin believe? Did Theodore Beza change Calvin's views? We're not going to settle that debate, but let's just assume that Beza is teaching uh, a lot of what Calvin believed with his own little touch. Well, one of those is what's called supralapsarianism. Supralapsarianism. And this has to do with the fact that God, even though God knew that the fall was going to happen, uh, long before the fall is planned in God's mind, He chose a people to save and He chose a people to not save and to be punished. That's called supralapsarian versus infralapsarian, which is God planned to um, allow the fall and, and the judgment, and then because of that, save the people uh, and let the rest perish. So Jacob Arminius really didn't like that. He was a Dutch man, um, Dutch theologian, and he said, I don't like what I learned in seminary. I'm going back to my home country, and I'm going to talk and teach man's free will. I'm not going to focus on God's predestination and election. I'm going to look at free will and emphasize that with my student. So his uh, non-Latinized name, his local Dutch name, Jacob Hermansen, Hermansen, Hermansen. Uh, he becomes a professor at the University of Leiden. Leiden becomes a reformed university because the Dutch people accept the Reformation, particularly what's come out of Calvin and Geneva and Beza. They want to follow that. So in the Dutch lowlands, uh, they want to train up pastors, and they're starting universities or reforming universities to do that. Jacob Arminius gets hired there, and at one point, he had studied under Beza, not Calvin because he comes after Calvin just a little bit, but uh, he studied under Beza. He became very opposed to that system of teaching. So he's going to start teaching a new type of theology, see, we often think Arminianism's been around, and I guess in a sense it has from the beginning of time, right? Man's free will is emphasized over God's uh, sovereignty since the fall. But officially, Arminianism does not come into church history until this point. It's, it's often backwards in our minds. We think, oh, Calvinism is the new thing. Everybody's already believed in Arminianism. Actually, Calvinism is the most common thing you're going to run into in the 1500s and 1600s in England, in Europe. It's Arminianism that comes later. So Arminius dies in 1609. So he doesn't live far into the 1600s, but his followers become more organized. Our leader is gone. We've got to write some things down that he taught and start teaching that. His followers, his students become theologians, they become professors, they become pastors. 
And so they say, well, there's five main points that we don't like about Calvin's teaching. And since all of the part of Europe they live in is teaching what Calvin taught, they want to be very clear, we disagree, we protest. A remonstrance is an official forceful protest. Not forceful with their fists or anything, but just very outspoken about it. So here's what they disagreed on. They disagreed on five things. One of them is total depravity. Calvin and his seminary taught that man was totally depraved, not, not able to come to God of his own free will. And we'll look at some scriptures on this in a minute. But that is indeed what the Bible says. The Arminians said that man is able to exercise saving faith of his own initiative. So they said we disagree with Calvin and all that's being taught. And even our country, the Dutch country at this time, we'll say Holland, it was teaching officially as a state religion, the reformed view that Calvin taught. So they said, we disagree with that. We disagree, secondly, with irresistible grace, that God's grace, they said, can be rejected. Calvin said, if God calls the heart, if God changes your heart, you will come to Christ. They taught, no, a person who's actually been changed in their heart and called in their heart by God can reject that and not be saved. They said, against Calvin's view of limited atonement, that Christ died for the elect that God chose. They said the atonement was unlimited in its intention. Not just power. All true Christians believe that the atonement is unlimited in its power. It has the power to save exactly whom God wants it to. But they said the intent that the Father sent the Son to die for every single person and the elect and predestination doesn't really matter in that conversation. And then fourthly, they said, we disagree with unconditional election. They don't agree with election as it was taught from Scripture in Calvin's uh, Geneva and other places. They said divine predestination is conditional, which is kind of an oxymoron, right? How can it be predestined if it's conditional? But we'll come back to that in a moment. They said it's based on God's foreknowledge of man's response. So if you ask most Christians today, what does foreknowledge mean in Romans 8? This is the definition they give, even though it is not backed up by the Greek term for foreknowledge in those texts. And it was not what was taught originally in the Reformation. Arminius came along and said, actually, this is more along the lines of God looking in the future. He looks down in the future. He sees that you'll be saved. And he then chooses people he knows will already make the decision to follow Christ and be Christians. And they said, that's not absolute. The Arminians did. They said, it's conditional. It's based on something you do, not something God does. And then fifthly, they disagreed with perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that God will persevere a true believer. They cannot lose their salvation. He will make sure they're remaining in the faith all the way till glory. The Arminians said, it is possible for believers to fall from grace and lose their salvation. So this becomes their document they put out. This becomes their protest. And that's going to get them into trouble, mainly because the government itself is under a lot of pressure at this time. The Spanish have been at war with the Dutch nations, and they are trying to take it over. The 
truce had been called, and unlike the Russian-Ukraine truce, it actually was a truce, and nobody fought for 12 years. So it's during this time that these guys put this together, and so the state, the, the leaders are saying, what is this different view? And the pastors are saying, we're really concerned about this Armenian theology. It's upsetting Christians. What are we going to do about it? And the leaders of the government say, this could be treasonous. Whether that's true or not, we'll, we won't really know. But they said that the Armenians were more likely to join with the Spanish, who were trying to take over the country. And that was so that once the Spanish took over, they could impose Arminianism on the people. So the government and all the pastors and theologians call for a council. Let's go back just a second, though, and, and talk about another thing Arminius taught. He taught something called preventing grace or prevenient grace that the Holy Spirit had given to all sinful men. So let's stop for a second. If man's going to be able to come to God of his own free will, the Bible's real clear that can't happen. So something else has to be there to enable that. Even though it's not in Scripture, Arminius said there must be some grace that prevents man from going completely depraved, completely off on his own. There must be a type of grace that allows him to choose which sort of runs into some circular arguments here because they're trying to get away from God's grace being the first step of salvation. And they say, no, it's man's free will. But for man to choose, he's got to have prevenient grace. So now we're back to God's grace. But anyway, uh, they said the Holy Spirit has given this to all mankind, everybody on the earth. And what it is is that men, even in their sin, are enabled by this grace to choose whether or not they would believe and whether or not they would receive the gift of salvation. So it's again, it's interesting. No, it's not based on God's grace. First man chooses, but man can't choose according to the Bible. So there's actually some kind of grace that happens before that. Provenient grace, is, it's not in the Bible. It doesn't come up. But John Wesley would later attach to this and, and really run with it. So they called this meeting together to look at the issue. What is the issue of Arminianism. What is Arminius even teaching and his followers? What do his writings say? And they gathered all these guys with Puritan hats together. No, there, there's no Puritans yet. This is much later with the Puritans in America and they wear these hats, but they're just inheriting these uh, the thing with the hats from this time period. So these guys gathered together. This is called the Synod of Dort. The Synod of Dort. It takes place in uh, in Holland here. And it has mostly local Dutch theologians and pastors, but there are some who come from Switzerland. The English Reformation has already occurred, which we'll look at next week. The English Reformation has already occurred. The English will send some people over. And so it is somewhat of an international council. It's not necessarily just for the Dutch pastors, but it's international in, in some sense. So this is how they would do it back then. They would gather everybody together in a room and the big wigs would sit at the table and be writing the documents and other pastors would say various things to add to it and there would be discussion and it would go on for years, just like the early church councils. So they said, Arminius' teaching is not found in Scripture. It doesn't agree with the confessions that have already been written by the Reformed people. So they rejected those five things and said, no, actually, we're going to more clearly state what we do believe. And this becomes known later as the five points of Calvinism. 
But again, Calvin didn't say, here's my five points, right? Make a list of my five commitments and take them out. Calvin said, I'm just trying to teach the word, preach the word, write down a systematic theology. And I don't even want y'all to come to my tomb. Don't even put my name on my tombstone. Don't call yourself after me. But at this point, people said, look, it's okay to say we're Calvinists because we follow Calvin's teaching. Because that, that's all you had. You had people who followed Arminian and people who followed Calvin. And in the sense that, what theologian are we going to look to? It's sort of like today, if I say, Ernest, do you like R.C. Sproul better as a teacher of the Bible or John MacArthur? Or do you like John Piper? Right? It doesn't mean Ernest is bowing down to John MacArthur every morning. It just means he recognizes a man that is faithful to the Scripture, so he prefers to listen to him when he preaches over those other guys I mentioned. Well, that's sort of how this starts out, but it becomes pretty much a huge argument in the Senate of Dort. And most of those guys are more Calvinistic, and they do side with the teachings of Calvin. So they say, let's write up five points in response to the five Arminian articles of remonstrance. And so the articles of remonstrance are what starts this, not Calvin's teaching, not the five points of Calvinism. So what are these? Total depravity. They affirm that. They affirm unconditional election. They affirm limited atonement. They affirm irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. So they're basically coming back around and saying the Arminians are not close to the Bible. Calvin's and Beza's teaching is. And by the way, Luther agreed with most of these as well. So did Zwingli. Uh, this isn't something special to Calvin. Calvin will just say, I got most of this from Augustine in the early church. And Augustine got most of that from the Apostle Paul and, and Paul's letters. So Synod of Dort happens in response to Arminianism. Now the Reformed position had been adopted by the state, as I said, by the government. So Arminius' followers, the Arminians, are exiled. What they did was they said, okay, we've decided that what you're teaching is not theologically correct. You need to stop teaching it in the churches and universities. And the guy said, well, sure, we can do that. But we're not going to stop from people coming to our house and gathering in the barns. And, and so later, the government said, well, sign this act that says you won't teach against uh, our teaching anymore. And they said, we can't do that. And so they sent them out of the country. Arminianism is condemned. Calvinism is espoused in the Synod of Dort, 1618, 1619. But Arminianism eventually wins the day in the popular mind because it goes over to England and infiltrates the Anglican church and becomes a very popular theology. Now, it doesn't really grow to be common until the late 1800s or, or second part of the 1800s. But it comes to England, has an effect there. Then they bring it to America. The American churches really adopt it, especially with Wesley coming to America and preaching a lot and starting the Methodist church movement. And from that will come Church of Christ and many other Arminian um, church movements as well. So here's the, uh, the handout that I gave you here. I want to go through that with you just to be really clear on what these two views are. Now, people today will say, I'm not either. But when, it, when a question comes up, you're either on one side or the other. And if you say, I'm not either, then typically that either means you don't want to say whose side you're on or you just don't understand the discussion. It's like saying, you know, is the chair, what color is that chair, right? Um, my wife and I would disagree. I would probably say it's brown. What would you say? 
burgundy, okay? It's either brown or burgundy, right? So it's not blue, it's not green, it's not gray. I mean, that chair is, we're going to have two choices here. What's even more clear on this issue, man's free will, what is it about? Are we depraved and don't have the ability to take that first step towards salvation? Or are we able to do that? Calvinism is on the right, Arminianism is on the left. So let's take the first point. The Arminian teaching, and this is the same way today, sin does not control man's will. He is sick and nearsighted, but he still has the ability to obey, believe, and repent. So this view is that sin has caused somebody to be really sick in their soul, and they can't do what God wants them to do. They can't please God, but they're just sick. They can still get up out of the sick bed and do something. And so he does not need to be regenerated by God in order to believe the gospel. In other words, God doesn't need to change their heart for them to believe, first of all. Now, the Calvinistic view is that sin controls every part of man, including his heart, his mind, his will. He is spiritually dead and blind. So this is not just sick, but he can't even see. Arminian says nearsighted. He's just sort of needs some spiritual glasses. He's groping around because it's blurry. Calvinist view is, no, he can't see anything. He is blind. He is reaching in the dark and unable to obey God to believe or repent. Man does not have the ability or power in himself to savingly believe in the gospel. In other words, he needs God to do something first. It's not saying we don't believe and repent. We do. It's saying God has to give that ability first. And so I believe our church teaches the right side of this because of those verses linked right there. This isn't my handout. I think it's Phil Johnson's from his website. But let's look at some of these. This is a good chart to remind us what the Bible says. Let's just go to Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5. We're going to do a little Bible study here because I don't want to start a new topic with the English Reformation. We're going to spend the rest of our time comparing and contrasting these two views. Remember, this has been a debate since the 1600s. It really was a debate in the early church too. But since Augustine taught most of what's on the right, nobody really debated Augustine until Arminian came along. Arminius came along. So Genesis 6-5, God makes a statement about man. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's saying a lot about man's heart right there. Every intent, every thought. It's not saying that every thought an unbeliever has is one of murder or holocaust or something. It's saying that even when he thinks good things, like I want to help my mom or I want to do something nice for the city, even those are tinged with a sinful desire for recognition, for pats on the back, for honor, for elevation, for our title. Even, even your mom telling you, oh, thank you, son, I really appreciate you helping me. An unbeliever can do, society would call that a nice thing, they can do nice things, but the Bible says every intent of their heart is only evil, and not just sometimes, but continually. See, we hear evil and we think, oh, that's, that's wicked. You know, that's Adolf Hitler. Well, there's a lot of variation between the nice, sweet old lady who is an unbeliever and Adolf Hitler. But the Bible says all of those 
All of those are having evil thoughts continually. Meaning, even a nice thing, according to society, can be evil if it's done for the wrong reason. You have to do things for the glory of God. Even believers sometimes do things that are good, but they're done for the wrong reason. They're done for boasting, for pride. So back to our text here. You say, well, that's before the flood. That's before God wiped out the earth. Surely all that evil was done away with, right? Well, if you read the rest of the Bible, you know that's not true. But again, in in, um, Genesis 8, and I think I mentioned this recently in a sermon, again in Genesis 8, they get off the ark, and right away Noah gets drunk, he falls into sin, and uh, God makes this covenant, though, when when Noah gets off the ark, and he says, I'm not going to flood the earth again. But look in 8, 20, 21, Noah builds an altar, he offers a sacrifice, God makes this covenant. But right before that, he says in 8.21, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself. So the only reason Moses knows this to write it down is because God told him. God said this to himself. He said, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So he talks about the seasons will continue, and the rainbow will be the mark of that covenant. But the point is, God says, even though man was sinful and I destroyed the whole earth, man's still sinful, but I'm not going to destroy the earth like that again. He did that once. He cleansed the earth. There was this whole issue with angels and, and you can Nephilim and all of that. You can read about that in Genesis 6. That's taken care of, but the sinfulness of man still exists. So let's skip now to Jeremiah. Because really, if, if, you, if you see the point of that first box and the right hand statement there, Everything else has to follow underneath it. It's not like you can jump off this train uh, later on as you move down through the list. So Jeremiah 17, 9. Maybe the nation of Israel will fix this problem of sin, right? Maybe the old Mosaic law, you can just obey it perfectly, and that'll make you holy, and you don't have to worry about this sinful depravity that man has. Well, here's what Jeremiah says right before the nation of Israel is about to be completely destroyed. Verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. So the Arminian says, we'll see right there, he's using the word sick. Yeah, but in context, it's sick as in who can understand it? We don't even understand our own hearts. Sin is corrupting our hearts in such a way that we don't even understand it. And so it's sick in that sense. But the first line really tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else. Even a person's, what they think is a good thought, a good thing, is still deceitful. And so we have to watch our hearts, even even believers do, but particularly all mankind is who he's talking about here. Let's jump to the New Testament, Mark 7, 21. So what we're seeing is not a pretty picture of the human heart. It's not just a guy laying down on the floor who's a little sick and needs a helping hand. This is more of the picture of someone dead, a skeleton at the bottom of the ocean with a Mack truck sitting on his chest. He can't do anything. And that's what we're going to see explicit in the New Testament. Mark 7, 21. This is what Jesus says here. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. This is not some people. He's talking about all mankind. Until a person is redeemed, 
They have a sinful heart, an evil heart, and these sinful actions come out of the heart. That's what Jesus says here. Not that a person just needs a little help. Jesus doesn't say, mankind is really sinful, but if y'all would just help one another and love one another and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, then we'll all be a better people. And we can defeat climate change. And we can really just bring about this utopia on earth. That's not what Jesus says. He says we're sinful. We're sick. We're dead in our sins. We cannot save ourselves. And we need a savior. And we need to turn to him. So this is what Paul picks up. We've gone through Romans 1. It's not in the list. But we've gone through Romans 1 recently in the sermons. And Paul makes a strong biblical case that all mankind is sinful. All mankind is born in sin, depraved minds, worshiping idols. Go to Romans 3.9. And here's where he just summarizes all that he said in Romans 1, 2, and 3 so far. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, which he calls a Greek here, are all under sin. They're all bound by sin. They're under it They're like a weight sitting on them. They cannot get away from it. And he summarizes by quoting from the Old Testament. There's none righteous, not even one. Well, there's got to be somebody who can earn their salvation. Not one. There's none who are righteous of their own self. Now, we know people can be righteous in Christ. He already said that in Romans 1. That's not what he's talking about here. Quoting from the Old Testament saying, the Bible teaches nobody can be righteous in and of themselves. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. See, we think today that people are always seeking after salvation, the, the one true God. They're seeking after Jesus. So there needs to be these big churches with all this entertainment to attract the seekers in. Then they can hear the gospel. But Paul says here, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, that there's actually no one who's seeking for God. This doesn't mean people don't want God. It doesn't mean people don't want to, to be free from their troubles in life. Everybody wants that. But they don't want the one true God. And if you go back to Romans 1 and read that, it says they suppress the truth of God they already know. They know something about God, but they actually don't like what they know about God. They don't like that God holds them to account for their sin. So they actually want a God that doesn't hold them to account. They want a God that's loving, that blesses them, that if they give a tithe, they're going to be a millionaire next week. They want a God of their own creation. But Paul said the one true God, there's no one actually seeking after him, which means if anybody does come to God, God's got to change something in them first is the idea. Verse 12, all have turned aside together. They become useless. There's no one who does good. There is not even one. Well, the Bible says there's no one who does good. If we take the Bible as true, and we don't question that. We question our view of the people we think are good that are unbelievers. And we have to qualify what we mean by good. What does it mean? They do nice things for people. Okay. Lots of sinful, evil people in the history of the world have done nice things. You know, I'm sure Adolf Hitler got his girlfriend that he finally married right before he died. I'm sure he got her gifts. And I'm sure she looked at him and said, that's so nice. That's so sweet. I'm sure Joseph Stalin got gifts for the people that he liked until he didn't like them and killed them. I'm sure that there are a lot of people in history that are unbelievers who've done nice things for others. But Paul in the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament say that there's no one who does good. 
Not even one. It's almost as if God knew we were going to say, yeah, there's that one person, though. They, they do good. Not even one. No one. Their throat is an open grave. So he talks about their tongues and how they deceive with their mouth. So he just goes through various things. And then at the end here, the path of peace they have not known. They don't know the path of peace. Only God can show them that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right after that, he goes into the gospel. He goes into justification by faith. So the idea is everyone is born in sin. Everyone has sin affecting them. Everyone has this depravity, this evil that permeates their life. Let's look at another one, Ephesians 2. You didn't know this was going to turn into a theology class, but I warned you that church history is also historical theology mixed in. And so since we came across this in church history, it's a good time to study it out. Because I don't know when I'll teach systematic theology again. It might be another year or two before we get back into that. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Does that say sick? Does that say you were just laying down? You were kind of not feeling well? You needed a helping hand? You needed some Tylenol to get out of bed? You're dead. What can a dead man do to take any step towards salvation? Paul uses the word dead for a reason. You are dead dead in your trespasses and sins and that dead body can't get up and move that's why he's using that the dead person can't do anything until god does something first verse two in which you formerly walked so he's talking about the course of your life you walked according to the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air that means satan it sometimes blows christian's mind to realize that all unbelievers are actually following satan They don't have to say, I'm a Satanist. They don't have to put a pentagram on their car, an upside pentagram. They don't have to go to the church of Satan that exists out there. But even if they don't realize it, unbelievers are walking, they're living according to Satan's desires. He is the spirit that is in, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So they're sons of disobedience. All unbelievers are sons of disobedience. They disobey God. They disobey his teaching. He says, that was you before you were saved. Verse 3, you all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, of the mind, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So he says, you Ephesians, you remember before you were saved? You were children of wrath. You were born. Children of wrath here is the idea that you're born into it. You're a child of God's wrath. Not that God produced children from wrath, but that you're born into something, God's wrath is upon you, in other words, when you're born into it. And that's all people. He says to the Ephesians, now it's different though, look at verse 4, but God. You see, if, if Arminian's view was true, it would say what? But man, but you did something. Who did it? But God. And it talks about God. He's rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive. There's the main verb right there. So let's just say, let's cut the description of God out for just a second and look at what it's saying here. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, the focus is on God, what He's doing first, His grace. Paul does not say, you are so awesome. You Ephesians are so awesome. You did it. You chose God. You're awesome. Pat yourself on the back. He says, God did it. It was God who did it. God made us alive in Christ. Just in case we don't get it, skip down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
How does that happen? It's by grace. But it's through faith. We still have to have faith. But God's grace is what allows us to have faith. He makes that super clear. He says, that's not of yourselves. What? What's not? Well, some say it's faith here that's not of yourselves. But it's really the, all, everything that's come before this in the verse. Grace, well, that's not of yourself because that's clearly God's grace, right? Being saved, well, that's not of ourselves. That's clearly God. And even faith is included. If you break it down grammatically, especially in the Greek, that, the word that includes all of those things. Even faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So who acts first here? It's God. He does it. He gives you faith. He grants you that faith. And then you do it. Then you have the faith. Verse 9 says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not something you can boast about. You can't say, you know, I'm just the smartest guy. That's why I'm the only one saved in my family. I'm just so smart. I was smart when I was younger. And uh, I just chose God. And I'm just so good looking. That's why. And I'm just so awesome. And my neighbor, you know, next door, the unbelieving neighbor, he's a dummy. He can't choose God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God saves because God saves, not because we are anything. And the Bible has a lot to say about people who think they're so wise and intelligent that they could save themselves. 1 John 1, 8-10 If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So a person cannot say they're not born a sinner. They can't say they have no sin. They can't say they're righteous. That's, that's like saying you're an unbeliever. That's, that's as if you're saying the truth of Christ and the gospel is not even in you. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. So he's talking, verse 9 is about believers. If you're a believer in Christ and you sin, you confess those and God will forgive you because he has promised that in Christ. But verse 10 says, if you're living a life where you say, I have not sinned. See, verse 8 is saying uh, we have no sin at all at the moment. As you're a Christian going through life and you say, you know, I've been perfected now. But 10 is even worse. This person says, We've not sinned at all. We never sin. We make him a liar. We make God a liar. And his word is not in us. So again, this idea that no one is righteous, no one is good, no one can just come to God and say, look at me, I've done all this. Um, This person, John says in verse 10, is not even a Christian if they say, I've never sinned. To be saved, you have to admit you're a sinner. All right, unconditional versus the Armenian view of conditional election. So if, if a person has a depraved heart, totally depraved, the heart, the mind, the body, they can't choose God, then who's got to take the initiative? Well, it must be God. God's going to have to do it. So election looks at, backs up and says, okay, if God's got to do it, then God had to have planned it. Now, the Armenian says God chose the elect on the basis of their foreseen faith so he's looking down today they say it like this he's looking down the corridors of time he looks down the corridors of time he knows you're going to believe and then he chooses based on that those people are going to believe so that's who i'm going to choose their election is thus determined by god seeing what man would do and responding to that so that's looking at what man is going to do and sort of responding or we could say rewarding or giving him that as a result of the faith that God sees ahead of time. The Calvinist view is that God chose the elect solely on the basis of his free grace. 
So let's just stop for a second and say, look, both sides believe in elections. It's how it's defined that's different. You can't, you can't eject election out of your theology because it's in the Bible. See, that's, that's going to be the issue. There are many people today who say, well, I'm, not, I'm neither. I'm not Arminian. I'm not Calvinist. I, um, I don't even believe in election. Well, the problem that you're going to run into if that's, some, that's you or somebody that you know is that you're just going to open the Bible and see it in Romans 8 or Ephesians 1. I mean, it's literally elect. 1 Peter 1. So both sides are trying to deal with this issue of what does it mean to be elect. It's not that election is not in the Bible. Of course it is. What does it mean is the question. Okay, so back to the, the Calvinist view, unconditional election. God chose the elect solely on the basis of His grace, His free grace. Free grace means that we didn't buy it from Him, we didn't do anything. It's, it's freely given by Him, not because of anything we've done. So it's not anything that He foresaw in them. God would only have foreseen rebellion. I mean, think about it. If we're totally depraved, none is righteous, none seeks after God. None are walking according to what God wants us to do with our lives until we're saved. Then that's all he's going to foresee. He has a special love for the elect. The rest were passed over by justly to be justly condemned for their sin and rebellion against God. So here's where the, the modern, especially now, in these days with Arminius, they didn't have this view that we all have rights and that we all have uh, an emphasis on free will. This was a new concept back then. Free will had been around a long time. Roman Catholics wrote all kinds of stuff about free will. But they always saw the will as being bound by sin. And that's what Luther writes uh, the bondage of the will about. Yes, we have a free will to choose things, but ultimately we can't go beyond the boundary of our sin. Even when we choose things, they're often that, that's done because we have a sinful desire to gain something. Back to unconditional election here. The idea is that we're all going to hell unless God saves, unless God chooses. That's the most important thing after total depravity that you have to understand about unconditional election. And it is taught biblically. We'll look at that. But everyone's already going to hell. You don't have to do anything. God doesn't have to do anything. People are already going to hell. Why? Because sin sends people to hell. Well, God sends them, but it's, it's because of sin, right? So everyone's already going there. It's merciful and God's grace to save some. Well, that's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. It's mercy. Fair is your judge for your sin. So God is being fair. God is being fair to those who are being punished for their sin. He's being merciful and graceful to those who are elect. And that's his choice. He's God. We can't tell God how to act. We can't tell God that's not fair. Change your theology, God. He knows what he's doing. He's good. And, and we don't go and preach this to unbelievers. That's not the point. You don't go down to downtown San Antonio and say, let me teach you about election, you a bunch of unbelievers. That's not how it works. Jesus proclaims, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm gentle. My burden is light. You call people to come to Christ, and then if they are elect and if God regenerates them, they will come. It's not up to us, though. We don't twist their arm. We don't force them to come. We just do what we're told to do, which is proclaim the truth. Romans 9. So you can imagine when I get to, for those of you who will be here, hopefully that's all of us here someday, when I get to Romans 9, 13, 
Hopefully I'll still be here and uh, we can spend a lot of time in Romans 9. You thought Romans 1 took a while to preach through. Wait till we get to 8 and 9, especially 9. So 9, 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. It doesn't mean that God just hates people for no reason. He's saying Esau gave up his birthright. God said the oldest son would have a wonderful gift. He would have the birthright of everything that the father owns. That was Esau. And what did Esau do? I'm hungry. Give me some food. Here, take my birthright. I just want to eat. The Bible says, the New Testament says, he threw it away as if it was nothing. It meant nothing to him. Now later, when Jacob gets that, he says, wah, wah, I wish I would have had it. But it's not for the right reasons. Now, Jacob's a scoundrel too, but that's not the point here. The point is God chose Jacob. And so it was said to his mother, the older will serve the younger. This was already, that's verse 12. This was already God's plan. And he's not just talking about two nations here. Of course, Jacob and Esau represent two nations. Uh, The nation of, of Israel is Jacob. And of course, he's talking about two nations. But Paul's using this argument here in regards to salvation too. What shall we say then? Verse 14. There's no injustice with God, is there? Because here's the person who says it's not fair. And Paul says, God can't be unfair. That would be unjust. You can never say God is unjust for sending people to hell and choosing some people. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God chose Israel. He did not choose Esau and Esau's descendants. God chooses whom he wants to save. And he made that clear to Moses. He makes that clear in the New Testament. Think about it. If if you're walking up and there's 10 homeless people there and they're all hungry and you choose to give three homeless people a meal, where's the unfairness in that? Is that unfair? Now, in our modern society, we say, well, those other seven, they can claim that's unfair. But why is that unfair? You chose to give something to the three people. Is that a good thing? Yeah? Okay, the other seven didn't get anything, but you didn't do anything to hurt them. You didn't do anything to harm them. Right? Now, it's hard for us to think of that analogy because we have different thoughts running through our minds and the reasons why we would do that. But just think about it. If... Those three receive a meal. They're thankful. They got a blessing from you by you giving them that meal. The other seven weren't expecting anything anyway, unless they're just panhandling. All right, I'm over schedule. So y'all, y'all got me preaching on this. We'll try to pick up. Would it be helpful to go through the rest of these next time? Yeah, and not just jump into the English Reformation. Let's go through the rest of these. And uh, we didn't even get into the verses on unconditional election, but we will pick up with uh, Romans 9.21 next week. Lord, we thank you for our time this morning, that you just continue to bless this church, bless us as we turn to Scripture. We we don't want to follow a man's name or a man's view. We want to look to Scripture. And if, if a teacher lines up with that, then amen, we can be thankful. But we want to turn to Scripture, look at these verses. Help us as we think through this, Lord, and help us now as we praise your holy name. Amen.